Just send me yeah cool. a link to it. Wave or like high quality MP3 is fine too. One twenty eight. No, three twenty, <laughs> baby. <laughs> what? It's triple digits. It must be nice. You're in mono. <laughs> you can handle three twenty. <laughs> I'm going to send you a flack like a real asshole. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, assistant to the number one host, Jeremy Ruggles. I am the number one host, Jeremy Ruggles, collector of unread Harper's Magazines. And I am Peter Cook, yet another host, perhaps the third, perhaps the first depending on what day it is. And I am a custom MySpace wallpaper designer. Oh, business is booming. <laughs> if it's 2007, booming. business is booming. <laughs> Are you uh, looking for any additional assistance by chance? Yeah. Yeah. In 2007, I need a lot of additional assistance. Is there anyone who can help me? <laughs> All right. Well, I'll be on call, I guess. Appreciate it. <laughs> you guys want to talk about a record though yeah okay do we also want to talk about this uh mysterious guest that's lurking oh hi that maybe wants oh, to introduce whoa. himself um well hello you snuck up on me i am meticulous <laughs> oh i'm stealthy like that i am meticulous faller bob bucko jr bbjr hello hello um AKA also known as Nam de Plume BBJR. Tell our listeners who somehow don't know what that means, what that is. <laughs> it's letters that are shorthand for my longer name <laughs> full of letters. <laughs> I I what well, you want me yeah. to say what I do? Yeah. Yeah. Ah. I make sounds and I live in Iowa. And uh, I've gotten to know the fine gentleman on I'd Buy That for a Dollar via driving around the country making sounds. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of our interactions are on the Facebook Now Playing group, Bob. Oh, yes. That is true. I think just earlier today we were talking the gories on there. Yeah. Yep. No tuners, no cymbals. And Peter said no, no bass. bass. All true. It is. And Bob, I'm guessing this has been a good year for you considering you're always touring and then <laughs> this year you cannot tour. Yeah, I was actually on the road when the lockdown went down. So I I, I had high hopes to be on the road a lot last year and those were dashed. But, uh, but you know, staying busy doing other things, uh, really focused on personal archives, which is a record label that I've been doing for almost 10 years. So... You know, you you find the things to do when there's other things you can't do, I guess. True. Perfect. With your time right now, do you want to talk about a record? I would like to talk about a record. Which one? I would like to go all the way with you guys. The Isley Brothers Go All the Way. 1980 Jammer. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the Raspberries. <laughs> I, I mean, that's not a bad one, but... But no, we're going to get funky today. I'm into it. Yes, much funkier than the Raspberries <laughs> were ever capable of. Even though they were a great band, we're going in a different direction. That's true. We're going to 1980. We are getting our roller skates on. We're going to jam. The year I was born. What do you want to jam? Let's jam the title cut. Right, Sean? Side A. Track one. Yeah. Go all the way. Parts one and two. <laughs> Yeah. 
and that's how you start a record right there. <laughs> the party has started. Just a full-on jammer right out the gate. Exactly. Oh, yeah. The party has begun. The one thing I really love about that song is how it's got this deceptively stripped-down sound to it. Yeah. Like, it, when you listen to it, there's not actually a lot of instrumentation going on. The drum track is very, very minimal. It's basically just that snare with the reverb. But when you listen to it closely, like the bass yeah. and the guitar, the way they're syncopated and rhythmically working together, it gives the impression that there's more of a drum kit or there's more happening than there really is. It's it's genius. Well, it's, I love it's, it. It's like this super weird combo of very slick, but also real raw sounding at the same time. Yes. Um, weird, weird analogy or like comparison point, like Ted Templeman on the first Van Halen record. Like, you know, and like when he's playing the bass and he hits that low E when they uh, do the verse part in uh, Go All The Way. Like it just, it feels super stripped down. You said a no-no word for Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say the last time we had uh, someone talking about uh, Van Halen, it was the last time we had someone from Dubuque on this podcast. <laughs> I am so not shocked <laughs> yeah. on that one. Ryan Werner. <laughs> What is it with Dubuque and Van Halen? God. What is it with me saying something good about Van Halen? Because that is rare in and of itself. But <laughs> but I'm glad it uh, rankled you up there, guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Just echoing what you're saying about how there really is like this deceptive kind of quality to Because there is a lot happening underground on that song but it's all like super underground Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of buried elements in the mix throughout this record that really elevate the song more than you might even like consciously realize at first listen yeah the production's great on this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's well i'm sure we'll get to this but it kind of even that's kind of like this kind of gateway into the 80s a little bit and into like the sounds to come that they're exploring. So yeah, that's the the big impression I get from this record is that it really feels like a transition period. You can hear the elements in like the vocal style going all the way back to the gospel and doo-wop and early soul fifties roots that this group has. And then you can hear some of the early seventies, more rock edged, heavy funk stuff. And then you can also hear going back all the way. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can also hear the like quiet storm yeah. and much more like R and B vocal direction that they're going to be heading soon. And it just all blends so perfectly on this record. The, the thing I noticed with a lot of the critical reception on this album while doing the research was that it's not remembered very well in their catalog. It's like a mid you know, three-star rated record most of the time. And people are always like, yeah, there's a couple good tracks, but, you know, it's not a great album. And no. people are always talking about <laughs> albums that came right after this or right before it that were really good. And this one just gets lost. Yeah. And I don't think that's fair. So we're going to talk about how great this album is. Yeah, and it's easy, you know, to get lost in the shuffle like that, I'm yeah. sure, uh, when they had so many hit. I mean, all these records were selling at least a million copies, like five or six in a row and mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of i guess you kind of have the revisionism because this didn't have like a huge huge hit i mean but even that's like a misnomer because like looking at this like uh don't say goodnight which is like one of the slow jams like hit number one on the r&b charts like yeah and you know has been sampled yeah and relived i think times, well, maybe some of the criticism is what I like that they do on this album, maybe that kind of like points to what you're talking about, leaning towards the quiet storm vibe is like on a song, like say you will, where it's not a ballad, but it's not like a crazy jammer. Like it's just almost mid tempo, but it's still moving quiet storm, baby. Yeah. You know? And like, I don't know if that, <laughs> when you compare it to, you know, the mid seventies albums where they're just slapping away, I don't know if that makes people, like more critically poo poo it or whatever, but yeah, if someone decides like this is the sound I like from this band, it yeah. can be really hard when they right. transition away from it. But they've been a band that's done a hundred styles, yeah. yeah, totally. I find that like the albums that get passed over critically the most are the ones not necessarily that take a hard left in genre, 
but just like build on a formula that they've already established. Yeah. For some reason, critics seem to always hate that. And I think that's a really weird kind of trope in reviews. It's like, totally. oh, well, they've done this three times before, so there's no point in hearing it again. Like, well, they're masters at it now. Right. And there's going to be a lot more subtle dynamic elements and things that they've learned and mastered in doing this. And I think this album's a good example. Plus, they'd be the first critics if they tried something different to get upset about that, too. So. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So before we dive into another track, I want to establish what everyone's level of Isley Brothers knowledge is. Jeremy, you want to Yeah, I'll say the same thing I said before we started here, that my knowledge begins with Shout and ends with, oh wow, now I'm even blanking on the second song I know by them. <laughs> uh, I think Shout Twist might be shout? in the title too. <laughs> No, not Twist and Shout. The one, it was like a 60s It's song. your thing? It's your thing. That's the one. That is their biggest hit, so it would make <laughs> sense that you would half know it at least. Yeah. Peter, what's your Isley Brothers knowledge? It's funny. It's always been scattered. Obviously, Shout was a favorite of mine when I was younger. I would get really riled up when that came on the radio. Loved that jam. And then here I was a... God forbid Peter get a pack of Smarties and... Shout comes on the radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. I knew no limits then. Um, and additionally, so I knew that was the Isley Brothers, but then they were sampled in 90s hip-hop, notably Between the Sheets is the basis for Big Papa by Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls. And so I would see that as the credited sample and be like, the, the Isley Brothers, the Shout guys, they're doing this, this smooth groove hip-hop stuff too? And then I'm aware that they worked with uh, Tonto's Expanding Headband, did some of their production in the, either the late 70s or the early to mid-80s, if I'm not mistaken. Well, if they did, I don't even know about that. So there's just so many things to learn about this group. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know a whole lot, though, about them as far as the individuals or there's probably still a lot of their catalog I have yet to explore. And as uh, you recommended this one a while back, Sean, and as soon as I checked it out, I was feeling it. Hell yeah. Well, it's a great record. Bob, what's your Isley Brothers level? I mean, I think it's kind of, it starts with like the entry level, what Peter was saying, you know, you kind of got these songs that are part of like the general pop culture vernacular and then just cruising Goodwills and buying 99 cent records and seeing Isley Brothers, you know, records like Fight the Power and uh, Go For It and like, okay, yeah, I know who that band is. Hey, they look really funky on the cover. I bet this will sound good. And going from there, yeah, just kind of having, but it's, I still feel like it's a passing knowledge, like looking into this episode. It's like I have that string from three plus three to this record. And I haven't really explored what they did after and before other than being aware of the huge hits. So it was kind of interesting to look into their history. I didn't know a lot about their history as individuals or a group. And kind of the big takeaway being like these cats put in about 50 plus years into things. Yeah, they're one of the few bands ever to have top 50 hits in five different decades wow yeah yeah so that kind of that kind of surprised me just putting it in that context and it is super impressive so we talked for a bit on the earth wind and fire episode about how that is a group that achieved these incredible heights of success and had these devoted followings these crazy record sales but this far removed from their career it seems like there's a uh, a big divide between which communities are more familiar with them. Growing up in a black family, you're going to know about Earth, Wind & Fire and the Isley Brothers, most likely. Whereas a lot of these white families had no more than a passing knowledge, as evidenced by all of us. You know, I didn't grow up listening right. to the Isley Brothers. I got them to them slowly the more I started record collecting, just like Bob said. So, once again, this is a legendary band that had a lot of success, but still has huge groups of people that could stand to learn a lot more about them. So that's why we're doing including us this episode. Hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into another song. 
next track we're going to play is called Say You Will. I oh, love yeah. this one. Parts one and two. I've been singing this all day. <laughs> oh, man. it's might be the best track on the album, but I don't know because there's just so many good tracks on this album. Yeah. Side A, track B. I don't know if, I don't know if this is going to ruin it for everyone going in. For me, it just makes it better. But I noticed that the instrumentation refrain sounds like a precursor to If I Was Your Girlfriend by Prince. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. I can get down with that. Proto Prince, even though he was already around. Let's let's see, let's see if the audience hears the connection. love the parts of this song where there's the multiple guitar tracks harmonizing with themselves mm. that then harmonize with the three-part vocal harmony and then suddenly the guitar just breaks into a solo and it's <laughs> ugh, it's so fucking mind-blowingly good the guitars on that one really jumped out at me when i was checking this out oh yeah dude ernie isley the guitar player genius is like maybe the most underappreciated guitarist of all time and uh when you listen to that full song, the outro guitar solo on there is so fucking good. And great rhythmic pocket playing, too. Yeah, like, absolutely. And, and when to do which. Even when he's like soloing through what feels like the entire song, it never seems like he's hamming on top of somebody. Yeah, I mean, he... And also, it's, it's interesting... It's interesting thinking of this in terms of it being 1980. And one thing they were very conscious about doing throughout a lot of the seventies too, was really bridging the gap between soul and funk music and rock music. Yeah. So these are like intentional rock shred solos, but you don't think of them as that because they're so lyrical and mm. so rhythmic and just, you know, continue to tell the story right with the song. Some of them just straight shred though. I was surprised by that. Yeah. But there's a real melodicism to his shredding. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's never like he's just being scalar. Like, there's just, you know, like, he's just playing the melody and harmony of the tune just at, like, blitzkrieg speed. True, true. It's, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like a lot of things about the Isley Brothers, like, I think it really does split the difference between a few things, which I guess is kind of like what you're talking about, because, like, they very intentionally stepped into that rock sound. Uh, I don't know. I know you have some, like, opinions and thoughts on that, Sean about like <laughs> the like the idea of uh the funk bands and uh bands with black members who kind of uh stepped into rock and who like could succeed who succeeded and who didn't with that and yeah there's there's so much of that of these soul bands cro trying to intentionally cross over into rock music but never being 
given that label or played on the rock radio stations as much. Mm-hmm. There's just this whole thing of that, that goes back to the very beginnings of the music industry of right. oftentimes people of color are just given their whole new genre and new charts and everything so that they can't be a part of the white charts for most part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 1980 is beyond when that was the most blatant, but there was still effects to it for sure. That's three years before MTV kind of capitulated to playing Michael Jackson videos. True. Obviously it wasn't the golden era of evil, but, uh, not a hell of a lot better. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, things don't change nearly as quickly as people would like to think they do. Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was telling Sean uh, when we were talking earlier that that seems to be an undercurrent with this podcast is pointing out like the racism that's been inherent in the industry side of it, as well as like how uh, culture and popular culture play off each other you know i don't even and, think uh, we have to intentionally aim at that it's just when you start uncovering these stories they're always there right yeah that's what i mean yeah, by if, you, if you tell the honest story of good records you're just gonna encounter it like immediately i mean the sammy davis episode just floored me to take all that in you know i love that you're promoting our other episodes but tell me about the isley brothers i don't know anything about <laughs> sorry <them. laughs> off on a tangent <laughs> i guess goes who clearly has listened to the podcast and gets shamed for it <laughs> <laughs> don't worry i didn't tell you what i thought of it yet it <laughs> yeah he wasn't mad about the way sammy davis was treated he was just mad about having to listen to this podcast for an hour wow <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeremy, all right. I will tell you, I'll tell you everything about the Isley brothers. I'm going to just grab this microphone for a few minutes and just blast through their extensive bio in as brief and informative a way as I can. Are you ready? Yes. Start at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> the history of the Isley brothers can be basically broken down into what I see as like four different periods. The first one is from 1954 to 1957 going all the way back. So the band was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Their father was a vaudeville performer and their mother played keys and organ and church. So they all grew up singing in church and there was an intentional movement from the kids being at a young age where the family was like, we have some pretty talented kids. We're going to support them and encourage them to perform and see if, you know, they can make a living off of the arts the way their parents had tried to. So the eldest brothers, O'Kelly Isley, Rudolph Isley, Ron Isley, and Vernon Isley formed the Isley Brothers, and they started touring the East Coast gospel circuit in the mid-50s. Vernon was actually the original lead singer of the band. However, the group disbanded in 1957 after a young, I believe 13-year-old Vernon was hit and killed while riding his bike near his home. Jesus. And the Isley Brothers were almost done in 1957 yeah which is yeah wild to think about so the next period goes from 1957 to 1968 in 57 like later in the year they decided that they wanted to give another try as a trio but instead they were going to rebrand as a secular group not strictly gospel anymore and they moved to new york city and as the band said they spent about two years paying their dues coming up in the club circuit building an audience, making friends, etc. And then they score their first major hit in 1959 with the song Shout. Um, it's so good. You could give us all a pack of Smarties right now and put that song on. I'm sure we'd all get riled up. How could you not? <laughs> it's, a, it's a timeless jam for sure. <laughs> Ernie Isley, the guitar player, who was not in the group at that point, who was still living at home with his parents, remembers the point where the family got the phone call from the older Isley brothers from New York and they heard the sound of like a, a jingling sound. And, you know, the older brother was like, you know what that sound is? The mom was like, no, what is it? Like, that's the key to your new house. We're moving to Jersey. <laughs> Dang. Their first success, they bought their mom a house, moved the whole family together. Tight knit crew from day one, for sure. Gotta love it. Yep. So they got their first top 40 hit later in 1962 with the song Twist and Shout. And that is after 
Phil Spector and Jerry Wexler had attempted to make a hit song with a different group <laughs> and they failed. Yeah. So then the Isley brothers story. stepped up with their producer, <laughs> recorded a better version than <laughs> Phil Spector and had a bigger hit with it. Yeah. And then a year later, the Beatles of course covered that song and sold about 9 million more copies than the Isley brothers did <laughs> for a practically identical yeah. song. Yeah. That's another place I remember first hearing about them was the, the Beatles connection, their influence on them. Yep. So 1964, the group launched their own label, and they also moved the whole family to Teaneck, New Jersey, and then named their label after the city that they were calling their home base at that point. And later in 1964, the group also discovered a young houseless Jimi Hendrix mm -hmm. and helped launch his career by hiring him to join the band, recording two songs with him, and letting him stay at their mom's house. Wow. And then in 1965, Jimmy left the group yeah. for his solo career. Who knows what happened to him after that? <laughs> and then the Isley Brothers signed to Motown in 1965, and they scored a major hit in 1966 with This Old Heart of Mine, mm -hmm. which is on every best of Motown comp in existence ever since then. <laughs> and this is a part that's really interesting to me because, you know, signing to Motown for so many artists' career was the pinnacle. Like they paid their dues until they got the Motown and then they rode that wave and disappeared. seems to be how it happened for most of the groups, but not the Isley brothers. They <laughs> left or were kicked off. Not sure which one it was in 1968 because they didn't really have a good follow-up hit to this old heart of mine. And they just relaunched their own label and became much more successful than they ever had been before. After that, on top of that, Motown sued the Isley brothers after they left <laughs> because one year after they left in 1969, they had their biggest hit of their entire career with it's your thing. Oh man. And Motown tried to argue that they had written it while they were still under contract and Motown actually owned the song, even though Motown hadn't recorded yeah. or released it. And who won that case? And the Isley brothers fucking won the case. <laughs> yeah. Thank ah, goodness. Take that. You know, I, as much as I, I love a lot of the music on Motown, Man, their the way their dealings with their artists were just terrible. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the case from the the more you read about any of the artists that were involved with it, or the majority of the artists at the very least. Yeah. This brings us to period number three for the Isley brothers from nineteen sixty-nine to nineteen eighty-three. A lot of people think of this as not necessarily their classic period, but maybe their best period. It's it's hard to say with a group that has such a long history and so many good songs, but like I said, they scored the biggest hit of their career in 1969. And then shortly after that, some of the younger Isley brothers, that would be Marvin Isley on bass and Chris Jasper, who was kind of an in-law and close family friend. When the family was growing up in Cincinnati, the Jasper family was in the same apartment as them. And the family was just kind of open door policy between the two, between the two families. And then later on, Rudolph Isley actually married one of the Jasper sisters. So mm. Chris Jasper on keyboard has very, very close ties to the Isley brothers, despite being the only member to not have the last name Isley. And then lastly, Ernie Isley on guitar joined. They were basically full-time members, the three of them, by about 1971. And then 1973, the Isley brothers officially announced that the three younger members were going to be full-time members of the group. And they became for the first time, a completely self-contained sextet up until this point, they were more of a vocal group. So there was in-house bands that were providing a lot of the music on their output over the past couple decades. But starting in 1973, everything was written, arranged, produced and recorded by the band. And we're an album like 10 or 11 by this point. Yeah, basically. The one we're actually talking about today is their 18th <laughs> studio record. Wow. So the first album in 1973 with the first group was called 3 by 3 because basically it was the joining of two different bands. The three younger players had actually started a band in their hometown before joining the Isley Brothers officially. They were at least 10 years younger than the older brothers. So, I mean... It, almost a different generation, basically. 
and had a whole different approach, kind of a younger vision. We're a little more in tune with the trends and the shifts in R&B music at that point. And then you had these three veteran guys who had been full-time road dog musicians for decades and had obviously tons of success and a wealth of knowledge. So the, the combination of these six members, I think, just made the most perfect powerhouse group throughout the 70s and the sales honestly reflected it oh yeah they were scoring hit after hit and also this was the period where they they weren't just scoring hit singles but they were having grammy winning and chart topping albums and they were kind of transitioning from it just being a single into it being a whole package yeah yeah no i mean that blows my mind like three by three was double platinum yeah you know exactly. and and I don't know how far behind a few of those other ones were because, I mean, yeah, they just had that great run throughout the 70s. And uh, exactly, it kind of goes back to what you said, you know, a band that could sell that many records and be in everyone's ear and then kind of for a large uh, part of the population kind of just drift away. Mm-hmm. You know, but it seems like they were near ubiquitous at the time. You know, none of us could really speak to living in the seventies, but you know, it's just every year there was like another badass album. <laughs> it does <laughs> seem that way in hindsight. <laughs> so the band breaks up in 1983 after the release of the incredible album between the sheets, which brings us to their final period, 1984 up until now, the younger members quit the band after the release of between the sheets and form their own group, Isley Jasper Isley. And then the original trio continued on making records. O'Kelly Isley died in 1986. And then the other older brother, Rudolph, quit music in 1989 to become a minister full-time. And then in 1991, Ron, Marvin, and Ernie reunited. Marvin had to leave the group a few years later for health issues and then died in 2010. They released a platinum album, Mission to Please, in 1996, and Ron Isley was also prominently featured in some hit music videos at the time. So there was like this whole rebirth in Isley Brothers popularity in 90s culture on top of all of these hit songs sampling Isley Brothers music. So they rode that wave nice. really well up into 2001 when they had a double platinum <laughs> album and a like number one hit single yeah. from their album Eternal That's again in wild. 2001. Can't believe it. That is legendary masterful and what year was shout like 59 59 so, so yeah they're, they're like hit singles are bookended between 1959 and 2001 yeah i mean how can you yeah how can you dismiss any of that in any way that is unreal yeah and so ron and ernie are the only original members who continue to perform as the isley brothers but they are still performing regularly wow. and still working. You can find lots of good interviews with them and some live footage and they're great. And then Chris Jasper, after the demise of Isley Jasper Isley had a successful solo career through the eighties. He launched his own label, did a lot of production for other people and was continue to be very successful and is still very active. So amazing group, crazy history. You guys want to hear another song? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What are we going to do next? We're going to play the song Here We Go Again, Side B, Track A. Love, White Snake. <laughs> How <laughs> dare you? Wow, Van Halen and White Snake. What's up, Sean? <laughs> yep. I, I think I just got myself kicked off. <laughs> Fired. <laughs>
for me to really grasp that this is 1980 because that sounds so much like R&B and hip hop did when I was really tuned in in 1993, 1994, way ahead of things. Oh yeah, totally. That, that's the other thing. This record is so ahead of the curve in the way they were presenting the music, which again, it's so stupid that it just gets passed over as this like, well, it was a record that was okay between other good records. Like, no. <laughs> no, this, this band was just dropping classics one after the other, and they deserve that level of respect. So I have to ask, if you have this information, what's up with everything, every track being called parts one and two? So I have a theory. I don't know, Bob, do you have the actual answer before I give my theory? Maybe. I mean, like all the 45s that were always part one and part two, and part two is usually like the kind of instrumental vamp. So I assume that's kind of what it was. Yeah, that was exactly my theory. I, I think it's more okay. evidence of this being two different. I didn't know if you had something more esoteric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's evidence of this band being at its heart, two different groups from two different generations. So when the older brothers were making records, if you had a long song, it was going to be presented as parts one and two because it would have to go on a 45. So if it was longer totally. than, you know, three minutes. Like, like they would cut it in half. And like you said, often when there is a part one and two, the second side would usually be mostly instrumental. A lot of James Brown yeah. songs were like that too. There's even yeah. Eric Burden and the Animals Sky Pilot parts one and two. Yep, exactly. And the longer song, especially in R&B music, became much more common after Isaac Hayes was yeah. inventing disco and dropping these super, super long tracks. And... Chris Jasper had stated that Marvin Gaye and Isaac Hayes were two of his primary influences. Mm. So he's listening to these guys who are making these long stretched out numbers with a lot of instrumental sections and also listening to these guys who were presenting albums as a concept piece. So uh, the fact that they still have the parts one and two on these long tracks when it's not really necessary anymore in 1980 i think it just speaks to i like it yeah the history behind this group Ex yep totally you mean that they're old <laughs> half of them are old <laughs> that, yep i could have just said that and saved us a lot of time on the recording <laughs> so for me that is a flawlessly arranged song the one that we just heard especially when you when you listen back to it and you play it a few times listen to the the space on every individual take yeah because every member is like playing just a few notes and then just sitting it out for a while and it all and every, fits into place every element yeah well, like, every element is just so good it's their 18th album they're pros at this point so oh, they know absolutely. exactly when and where to put everything and i feel like every time i played that song there was a new element that was like okay that's <laughs> actually the the like secret recipe to this song being great you know you can focus on you can focus on ron's lead vocals where he's just got that like super sexy way of singing these slow jams like that yeah. that's just completely unique to himself and then there's like the background harmonies that are all reverb the out. reverb yeah. on those backgrounds is wild because they just come into those little spots and that reverb and hangs they're so low and in then, the mix ooh. that they just blend in you don't even think about them until all of a sudden you're like wait 
those harmonies in the background are fucking incredible. <laughs> and then you notice the bass line is totally killing it. And then oh. you notice that there's like three different <laughs> keyboard sounds and they all fit perfectly for the different parts of the songs he put them in. And the drums are super funky. They didn't even have a regular drummer. The, the guitarist and keyboardist just traded off doing drums and percussion on all of these records. That's, oh, that's, that's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> that's so amazing. Who's the producer on this album? Oh, damn. The Isley Brothers. It was in-house. Yeah. They were. Okay. I figured. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on of like so many different skill sets and just excelling in all of it. Yeah. The back of the jacket says all songs written, arranged, and produced by, and then it just names the Isley Brothers. That's vertical integration right there. Yeah. And then the the other thing was, like I said, with the older generation of this group being the vocal group, they weren't actually even writing any of the songs. It was just it was just the younger guys, Chris, yeah. Ernie, and Marvin, who were doing all the writing. And it was primarily Chris would write the majority of these songs. Because that's the other thing. Even though these guys had this potential ticket into the industry from a young age of these, you know, their older brothers are all successful and they have their own label and they have these hit songs. They still completed high school and then completed college and were much more musically trained than their older brothers had ever been. So that's why they're able to bring in this whole new element and just have these flawlessly produced and written and arranged songs. I really, really appreciate and respect how much they kept everything in house and were able to get the level of quality in all those different aspects while being in house, you know? Definitely. Because sometimes some people think they can do it all and they can't quite do most of the things that they think they can. And between the six of them, like all bases are covered. It's just like like the unity of that is super cool because like, you know, the younger brothers could have gone done their own thing from the beginning. You know, just riding mm-hmm. on the coattails of, oh, those are my older brothers. I don't know. Like and the independence that they were able to have creatively by being able to do it that way definitely and you know i as i stated uh chris and the other two younger members had wrote and produced and performed the music but i think it, it would not be fair to write out the contributions of the older members oh, at yeah. this point too even though they were not writing anything uh for example this record was actually initially written and recorded by chris jasper as an intention of making either a solo record or possibly a trio of just the younger members. And then when he, he ended up being convinced by Ernie and Marvin to bring the tracks to the older brothers and see if they want to do the record and the way they ended up delivering the vocals on it and adding to it, it became something a little bit different than what he had intended and most likely elevated it. As I said, some of the some of my favorite parts on here are just those vocal harmonies oh, yeah. and that, that mix of that kind of gritty old school vocal style on top of the slick new production just fits perfectly. Yeah, no, agreed completely. I think that's, you know, the kind of high low of it, those kind of just, dis- you know, it's, I don't know. That's really what keeps me coming back to this band in general, like this seventies era is that everything sounds kind of dirty, even when it's slick. Mm-hmm. You know, like like there's definitely people behind all those sounds, you know, but it's also just one of the best exponents of those kind of sounds. Absolutely. And and you've got that element of, you know, the the live bass and oftentimes the live percussion, but with just like a little bit of newer keyboard and synthesizer sounds in there to flavor it and elevate it and just keep slowly moving it. Yeah, dude, the keys don't sound dated at all. Agreed. You know, like his sounds are, you know, real smart selections. Sean, do you have some some more third era Isley Brothers-like music? I definitely do have some suggestions for that. I have a whole playlist of similar mm. things plus more Isley Brothers material from other albums to check out. That was very thoughtful. On our Spotify playlist? On our Spotify playlist. All right. Um, You can hear such groups that we've talked about before as the Brothers Johnson. I also put Bohannon on there. Nice. And and Isaac Hayes on there as well. And Earth, Wind, and Fire. I tried to pick, whenever I could, groups that had a similar thing of like they'd been around for a long time but were successfully transitioning into these new styles sometimes multiple times 
So there's some stuff by Archie Bell and the Drells from real late period record. There's some Bar Kays in there, Isaac Hayes, as I said before. And then there's some other groups like Shy Lights, Rufus and Shaka Khan, Smokey Robinson, D Train, Enchantment, mm-hmm. Ohio Players, The Commodores, Teddy Pendergrass. You can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word to find this playlist and every other accompanying playlist for our season two episodes. And we would like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. If you're listening to this and want to contribute, you can go over to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast and check out what we have available there. But if there are other ways that you can support this podcast, if it's not, with cash, if it's not financial, you can still help us out. And one way to do that is to leave a review on the podcaster, which you use, the platform. Some kind words can go a long way for getting the word out in, on this podcast to other people. So, yeah, go ahead and please leave us a review, a kind one. <laughs> so so I shouldn't leave a review then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah, Bob. Don't leave a review, Bob. <laughs> One word sucked. <laughs> but yeah, do you have anything else to plug uh, while you're here? I wouldn't listen to that for a dollar. Um, I I have a couple live streams coming up that will be already over by the time this airs. So keeping it pretty quiet on my own. But um, if you want to check out. Uh, personalarchives.bandcamp.com that's the record label I concentrated a lot on last year and have some big stuff coming out in the spring so take a look at that well and you're also a very uh, prolific artist on your own right how many solo records do you have at this point too many (laughs) I seriously I mean quickly approaching Isley Brothers yeah yeah literally dozens none of them as good as the Isley Brothers (laughs) (laughs) but god damn it he's trying (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm uh presently recording an album so yeah right now is just kind of my downtime to get everything ready for when i'll have more stuff and maybe when the world will be more ready to do more stuff in sounds good yeah i look forward to that and anything else i like to spend all of my time I'm, I should say I'm going to spend all of my time remaining in quarantine jamming both Bob Bucko projects and Isley Brothers albums. Well, that, that should keep you busy. That'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope it doesn't last that long. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. Absolutely. Any, any final thoughts from anyone? Well, what are we, uh, what are we going out on? What's this final cut we're going to leave the people with? This final cut is the track that many people will recognize as, as being sampled by Jay Dilla, not only on the Donuts album, but also on the Shining album. And it's also been sampled by a ton of other hip hop artists. It's called Don't Say Goodnight. It's time for It's time love. for love. Anything that was sampled on Donuts, whenever I listen to that album, it sounds... That album sounds like a colliding of the latter half of the 20th century all inside of Jay Dilla's head. And so anything that was sampled on there, I have a huge affection for. Same. Couldn't agree more. Uh, A personal connection with this song for me. I was out thrifting, sourcing records a few weeks ago. I walk into a thrift store and the intro of this song is playing. (laughs) As I'm walking through the store to get to the crate of records in the back, I just start hearing people from all over the thrift store just like quietly singing along with it. Nice. Like, Man, I fucking love Philadelphia. Because <laughs> that is not an experience you will have in the Midwest nearly as often as out here on the East Coast, let me tell you. You just convinced me to move. All right, come on out. The water's fine. We got <laughs> Isley Brothers in the thrift stores. We got cheesesteaks. What more could you want? <laughs> You got Gap Band solo artists on the radio. Exactly. Living large out here. All right, let's listen to this last track. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Peter Cook. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Don't say goodnight. Good night. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> I set him up. He knocks him down. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Thank you.
Love 